Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Well, they'll go out and they'll vote and they're going to have to go and check their vote by going to the poll and voting that way because uh, if it, if it uh, tabulates, then they won't be able to do that. So let them send it in and let them go vote. And if their system's as good as they say it is, then obviously they won't be able to vote. If it isn't tabulated, they'll be able to vote. So that's the way it is. But send in your ballots, send them in strong, whether it's solicited or unsolicited. The absentees are fine. We have to work to get them. You know, it means something. And you send them in, but you go to vote. And if they haven't counted it, you can vote. So that's the way I view it. That was the president of the United States in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, encouraging everybody to vote twice. It seems the campaign of chaos, distrust, and distraction is in full effect. Not a coincidence that on Friday, North Carolina sends out requested ballots. David, I'm going to resist the opportunity to make a no, you're not. county no, board, you're not. <laughs> board of registrars joke. Yeah, and I know that Murphy paid you off to do that because he can't. He get he, there are two things he has to get in every podcast. One is Gina Raimondo, and the other is references to voting irregularities in Chicago. Gina Raimondo for OMB, by the way. <laughs> that voice, <laughs> that voice is a, very, a famous and familiar voice of my old buddy, our old buddy Mark McKinnon of the uh, uh, late of the circus, uh, but of many other endeavors, including some we did together, but most notably the George W. Bush uh, campaigns. Welcome, brother. Good to see you. Mr. Magoo, guest hackeroo reporting for duty, sirs. <laughs> Are you, uh, you're, in, you're in Milwaukee. What are you doing up in Milwaukee? Uh, well, we decided to, uh, you know, put our show where the action was this weekend. All the action all week has been Wisconsin. So our whole episode really is going to be focused on Wisconsin. As you know, both uh, the president and uh, former vice president were here this week. So uh, this is ground zero this week. You know, Mark, we'll get into a little bit more of Wisconsin, but I, I always felt like, and maybe this was just my gut, or, or maybe I wanted to feel this, that once you, when you're on the ground, you get a certain feeling of, of kind of what the atmosphere is like and, and sort of how it feels in a campaign. What do you feel up there this week? Uh, it's spooky. I mean, it's tense. And, uh, you know, I mean, Kenosha, I, I think both of you guys have been to Kenosha. I mean, it's a pretty kind of bedroom suburban community, right? And it just feels, it feels weird. And you talk to people and they're, they're on edge. You know, you've sort of you had the COVID overlay already. Then you kind of lay in the, you know, the racial injustice and protests and what have you. And people are just jittery and and scared and, um, you know, just just really on edge. Uh, you, you can feel it. You really can feel it. Were people uh, how was the feeling about the president coming there? Because 
they, they've gone through this trauma and now they're sort of a center stage. Uh, uh, Trump was there yesterday, Joe Biden there today, uh, or was it two days ago that Trump was there? But uh, how do they feel about all that? Well, you know, I, 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 I talked to, uh, I was talking to a bunch of folks today and I, my thought was that they were, they might sort of be opposed to the notion of, you know, sort of politicizing all this, but actually the, the people I talked to, including cops, said, no, we need to have this dialogue. We need to have this conversation. And we're glad that we're having it. And, you know, people have differing opinions and there's, you know, very, uh, you know, vocal Trump supporters, very vocal uh, Biden supporters. Uh, but but they all feel like this is kind of a moment and then and they're in the middle of it. So they it's I guess it's kind of a catharsis for them to sort of get it all on the table. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is you know, we've been through this, uh, presidential campaigns that they turn on the things you can plan on and, and often on the things you don't plan on that become larger than anybody ever imagined. And nobody saw Kenosha, Wisconsin as being the epicenter of American politics, uh, two weeks ago. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, you know, A, we didn't see that coming. And B, of course, we didn't see Wisconsin coming in 2016 politically. Right. And so now the way things are stacking up, this is, you know, once again, there's not a lot of electoral votes, but it may be election where once again, not electoral votes change the change the outcome. So it's particularly that's why we felt it was important to be here, not to just get our thumb on the pulse of what's happening uh, related to the, you know, the, the protests and the shootings, but also just politically and trying to get a sense of it. Yeah. Mark, you, you, I think you appropriately said this was the, this is the epicenter. I mean, we've, we've thought about it for a long time. As you mentioned, 2016, it, it became, uh, it had a starring role. Everyone's been talking about it for four years. Uh, you know, the week started off with Biden giving a, a statement that many, certainly in the democratic community were getting nervous that he hadn't as forcefully made uh, let's play that 60 second ad that biden's up with now that comes from that speech i want to make it absolutely clear rioting is not protesting looting is not protesting it's lawlessness plain and simple and those who do it should be prosecuted fires are burning and we have a president who fans the flames he can't stop the violence because for years he's fomented it but his failure to call on his own supporters to stop acting as an armed militia in this country shows how weak he is. Violence will not bring change. It'll only bring destruction. It's wrong in every way. If I were president, my language would be less divisive. I'd be looking to lower the temperature in this country, not raise it. Donald Trump is determined to instill fear in America because Donald Trump adds fuel to every fire. This is not who we are, I believe, will be guided by the words of Pope John Paul II, words drawn from the scriptures. Be not afraid. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. What do you guys think? I think, boy, it's, it's the right message at the right time for sure. And Gibbs, as you were saying, you know your party's famous for bedwetting, and that kind of threw a big old diaper on it, right? I mean, it was he really needed to do that. He came out, you know, he's planning to go out after Labor Day, and they moved the schedule up, and I think it was a smart thing. And I think, you know, I, I, I think a lot of that noise is kind of from the crowd of 500 and, you know, a lot of the Democratic constituencies just freaking out, but freaking out for good reason. They saw what happened before, so... Uh, you know, I, I, and it's interesting. I know you want, we're going to pull the lens back a little bit more 
kind of what's happening more broadly. But, you know, uh, at least it looks for now that that things are sort of stabilizing for Biden. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, the, the question is whether they were destabilized yeah. anyway. I mean, the fact yeah. of the matter is this was Trump's uh, play to try and shift the discussion of the election away from the things that are killing him right now. Uh, uh, coronavirus, the the state of the economy. Uh and, uh, you know, he knew that he was losing uh, the discussion on race. And, you know, we saw the convention. He turned it into a big, uh, 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 you know, a, a big be afraid, be very afraid kind of session about uh, bands of marauding mobs coming up to your doorstep, Madam Suburbanite. Uh, but there's nothing in the data that we've seen this this deluge of data that we've seen in the last few days that suggests that he is making a lot of headway with that. Well, well, not only not making headway, guys, but some of the data that I've seen, or all of it, has said that on the question of law and order, they trust Joe Biden more than Donald Trump. Yeah, Quinnipiac poll yesterday. I think it was Quinnipiac. Maybe it was the, it was the um, well, the, the CNN poll said uh, Biden over Trump 51-45 on uh, uh who what is the will keep Americans safe from harm now that also probably people have coronavirus in mind yeah but uh and then Quinnipiac had a similar question do you feel more safe or less safe with with Trump as president 50 to 35 less safe wow so he's making safety the you know one thing about campaigns is if you're gonna ask a question you better make sure you're the answer <laughs> well, and I think a- to your point, Mark, I mean, I, Democrats were beginning to get very nervous. Uh, now, whether or not that was Mark's just, right. So that's a Democratic. Sort I was going to say that's a hobby just embedded in our DNA, uh, <laughs> whether, uh, you know, whether they, we tend to be pilots that are also afraid to fly uh, versus <laughs> something that was based on any real data. Uh, obviously, I think came in the nick of time. The ad is really strong. The, the message is is compelling. Um, you know, it's, it's just, I thought it's well done. I want to say two things about it. One is, you know, you come from Alabama. I come from Chicago. Race is a very volatile thing. And I think there, you know, if Democrats were nervous, there was reason to be, uh, because, you know, we've seen people play this card before in history and, uh, and, and it, it releases these primal forces. And that of course is what Trump wanted to do what what Biden did so well in that speech and encapsulated in that ad is jujitsu. He turned it on him. He took his negative energy and he turned it back at him and basically asked people, is this the way we want to go? Is this what we need in this country? I think it was very, very powerful. But the other point I want to make, you know, is the last lines that John Paul II, because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump carried Catholics in 2016. I was, you know, someone pointed out to me uh, that uh, there were a lot of Catholic outreach points in the Republican convention. I mean, Biden talked about his Catholicism, or they did in his convention quite a bit. In the Republican convention, they had Cardinal Dolan doing the invocation, Lou Holtz saying Biden was a Catholic in name only. Uh, there was a lot of work on Catholic. Catholicism. And it's interesting to me, this is sort of a subplot. It's not the main point here, but I think there's a lot of jostling going on. One of the problems Trump has is that Biden has inroads with Catholic voters who uh, who Trump won last time. 
and you know Donald Trump, of course, thinks that the New Testament is just an edited version of the old one. It's going to be pretty <laughs> clear who's, who, which guys actually read the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. They could have a whole debate on that, and I wonder if Trump would accept that as a uh, if they mm. maybe Biden will offer to add a fourth debate if it's only on biblical questions. Yeah, <laughs> no, it is. I, I agree with both your points on on the ad. I think the answer to some of the question that you see in the polling around safety and security. I think also the one thing he did in that those remarks and in that ad is is broaden what safety means, broaden what yes. security means. Um, you know, it, it includes your job, it includes your health care, in addition to your family and your property. And safety and think, from your virus. Yes. Yeah, and also put it at his doorstep. It's like, okay, Mr. President, this is your watch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You're the president. Right. That is an extraordinary thing about what's going on right now. This is the needle that Trump is trying to thread. He is he is he is the president of the United States, and he is destri- describing this dystopia around him, around us, and saying, "Elect me to deal with this dystopia that is going on on my watch." It's a difficult message. Yeah, of course, he's trying to say it's happening all in democratic cities, that's, which that's, is not true. Like, not true. I mean, the fact is that these problems are uh, are evident in cities led by Republicans as well as Democrats, including Miami, by the way. Well, he's he's never ever made the turn from running in 2016 in what amounted to an, an open race as a non-incumbent to being the owner of all the nation's problems. And you know, we we've all spent time either working in or meeting with folks in the White House, and you may not want to own every problem that is hanging around, but it's really hard not to when you're sitting uh, at that desk in that office. Uh, and and I, I think it's um, again, I just think it's the turn he's never made. Now, maybe to to the the point of maybe even if he's not winning on this question, which is a questionable strategy for anybody running. It's certainly, as you mentioned, David, better than fighting it out on coronavirus. Well, maybe, uh, he's, maybe, he's, maybe yeah. he still has some advantage on the economy in, in some of these polls. Uh, but I was struck, you know, as we as we look at some of this polling that's come out, I mean, even the Fox poll in Wisconsin uh, that has uh, that has Biden up eight points, 50-42, asked specifically, um, who do you trust more on policing and criminal justice? So, assumingly, that takes some of that broader security debate out of this. Biden led that argument by five, 47-42, in a poll that just came out of the field. So, it, it isn't clear to me, as it is not clear to each of you, that the the president is uh, is holding the aces he thinks he is. Yeah, I just think he knows that he's got a whole bunch of deuces and he's just <laughs> taking a shot here because uh, because you know the the real question, McKinnon, is can you when you have something as pervasive as this virus, as pervasive as these economic conditions. Can you actually change the subject? You know, one of the things that in the it was either in the CNN or Quinnipiac poll uh, when people talked about problems, you know, crime was way down the list. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, that, I saw that. I, it's a, it, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is this was a big black swan event. And one thing that people had always questioned about, even even, you know, as Trump had had a pretty you know, good open field running for three and a half years is what would happen in a crisis. And that's what we elect presidents to do, right, is to handle a crisis and provide leadership. And and by the way, as you know, from 2008, to make very hard decisions that are often unpopular, which Trump hates to do. 
And so he didn't make, you know, the tough decisions like, you know, maybe shutting some states down early as they should have been and uh, and testing like, uh, you know, protocols that, that were needed. So I, I believe that ultimately that question overhangs the election entirely. And, and unless and until Donald Trump can give some measure of confidence to the American public that he a recognizes it, you know, and B has some sort of plan to deal with. it. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? I mean, you know, I, I, I thought from the beginning, if he behaved like some of these governors did, he would have uh, he'd probably be in a much stronger position right now, even with the virus and with the economy. If it looked like he played it straight up, subjugated his own political needs to the to the job of the presidency in the country. But that's not who he is. I mean, he did make some difficult decisions in the middle of March and he stuck with them for a few weeks uh, and then started running against his own decisions. You know, and uh, I mean, he would literally was leading the resistance to his own government's directives. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and now he's meddling with the health agencies and what their, you know, what their standards are and that sort of thing. That's man. Well, I said three months ago we were going to have a vaccine before the election. We may have a we're going to have a vaccine before November 3rd. We may not have a vaccine on November 4th. But we're going to have a, a vaccine. <laughs> no, it's a headline November. today. It said November 1st. I saw it no. in Don Like Drug today. I mean, 1st. it's just so predictable. And it strikes me, you guys, that the most valuable person, it, it must kill him to know this, the most valuable person in Trump's world is going to turn out to be Tony Fauci. Because if Tony Fauci says, you know what, this isn't ready to go. Which I think he's already saying. They've, he said today that he thought, that uh, it was improbable, th- right? That it was improbable. It, you know, if he if he turns thumbs down on this, and uh, the the verdict is this is a politically motivated thing that's going too fast, that is a catastrophe for the country. But it's also a catastrophe for Trump. Yeah. Well, as you say, it's a massive public health emergency because uh, we th- if you added people. If you added distrust to the efficacy of a vaccine because of politics into right, yeah. a, a spiking, a potentially spiking during flu season coronavirus, uh, what a disaster. And, and well, and you've, I, yeah, and you've already got a bunch of, I think, mostly Trump supporters who are skeptical about the vaccine anyway. Exactly. I mean, this is a huge problem because if people don't take the vaccine, um, we're going to be in this stew for a lot longer and uh, that that's a disaster. So, Robert, on these polls, yeah, you know the striking thing about it, you guys, is the how sta- you you tweeted on this, Robert, how, how static things are. I was really struck uh, when you look, and and I will give my admonition that I'm not a huge fan at this point in the race of of talking a lot about national polling. It's not how we elect presidents. All right, you did it. Now let's do it. But, but we were right, exactly. <laughs> but there was a collective freakout that was happening, particularly I think, driven a lot by the media that 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 somehow, absent data, that this race was moving. I think this was being covered a lot like twenty six or learned from twenty sixteen that we were going to come out of this, and oh gosh, Trump was going to be in the lead, and all that. So this there was this narrative that I thought was way ahead of what we were seeing, and. If you go back and look at the national polling average from before, uh, right before the DNC started and, and, and right after now where we were yesterday, you know, almost a week, now a week after the Republican convention, Biden has gone on average from leading the race from 8.0 to 7.4. 
So in, in a pretty monumental 17 days, really stability is what you draw most out of, I think, looking at, at this national polling. And as you said, David, in a, in a poker game with aces and deuces, uh, assuming you don't have four of them, being down seven and a half or 7.4 going into Labor Day is, uh, is not, are not the cards you want to hold. No. And, you know, one of these polls showed 87% of the people say they've made up their minds and they're not going to change it. McKinnon, the structure of uh, our politics is such that there isn't that much play. There isn't yeah. that much movement, especially when, you know, the president is very well known. Well, yeah, that's and so not only is it, you know, the, the structure of the polling fairly stable pre and post uh, conventions, it's been pretty stable over the last year. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and one of the things I said about the convention going is that I, is that I didn't think there was going to be much of a bounce either way. Right. Because, as you said, everybody yeah. knows Donald Trump. And most people, I mean, I know there's a narrative part of Joe Biden that some people don't know and learn through the convention, but but they have a pretty good sense of him. And by the way, the, my favorite part of his speech the other day was not on the law and order stuff, but, but his to say, yeah. do I look like a radical socialist to you? That, that was great. That may be the most important yeah. thing, thing, you know, because this is why he's such a troublesome opponent for Trump. I've said a million times here and elsewhere, he's culturally inconvenient. He, yes. he, he just doesn't look like the radical that Trump wants to depict the Democratic nominee as. And, and now he doesn't he hasn't lately been looking like this sort of addled dupe of the left either, which is their backup kind of depiction. Biden's been pretty comfortable and pretty tough lately. And he looks very much like he's in the game, which is a problem for Trump, because what's very clear is when you're sitting there with uh, approval ratings in the low 40s uh, and people have a very well-formulated view of you, if you can't def define the opponent negatively, you're probably going to lose the election. And uh, that's where he's headed right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I just take me back to 2004, and that, that was a you know, reelect that we were doing, and our boss was unpopular. We were in Iraq, and that was unpopular. And we, you know, the only way... We, you know, once again, kind of like 2000, we were blessed by our opposition and, and somebody who was, A, the opposite of George W. Bush, at least in terms of kind of having a clear, you know, grounded idea of who he was and where he was going versus somebody who kind of seemed to be political and, and, and uh, change things conveniently to the political mood. And so we were able to kind of define John Kerry, but as, as we've been saying, you really can't do that with Joe Biden. He's just been around too long and people know him too well. I think they've tried. I don't think they found the one that works. I, I'm I'm struck by the well, fact that they seem yeah. to be still. Uh, it seems to be just throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and hope something sticks. And and you know they've pulled you know, ads down a couple of times, and it's been strange. So David, uh, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, that your old pal Pluff mentioned in his book about something I said about our about our reelect in 2004, which is something that you guys you guys thought a little bit about was that we decided early on that a consistently executed imperfect strategy was better than a strategy that changed week to week or month to month in, in search of, of the perfect. For sure. And we just planted the flag and stuck with it. Yeah. Well, that was certainly true with Obama in 2012. Now, in fairness, uh, neither Neither uh, your campaign or our campaign was confronted with uh, a once-in-a-century pandemic. Sure, uh, sure. Or, although I think that, you know, a different kind of president 
handling it a different way, as I said earlier, would would strengthen uh, him. So same thing goes for that strategy too. If you if you had made a clear, consistent strategy on that that didn't look political, and you know you just you were listening to scientists or whatever or whatever you did. I mean, the only thing we know that he's done is just bounce the hell around all over the place. You know, one of the things that strikes me, I mean, I, I agree. We They've done a poor job of defining the vice president, Vice President Biden. But what struck me looking at these five national polls that came out over the last sort of 36 to 48 hours, th- this is Trump's number in, in each of these five polls. 43, 43, 42, 41, 40. Uh, you know, you two are, you've been at the, the lead strategist for two different presidential campaigns, each of you. Um, if you're sitting in Trump headquarters listening to this podcast, what are you thinking? What is Labor Day? What does the next 25 days look like leading into the debate? What do you need to set up? What do you need to do? How, how do you get how do you get this going? If I'm sitting there in Trump headquarters listening to this podcast right now, I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing listening to these guys? We're getting our asses kicked. We better figure out what to do. But uh you know, I don't know, McKinnon. Go, you go first, and I'll try and formulate a strategy in the interim. <laughs> Forty-three is kind of the Mendoza line, right? <laughs> I yeah. don't think anybody's been reelected, you know, with a number forty-three or under in you know modern uh, political history. Yeah, and so uh, you you, you got to find. And the other thing, you know, God, we we just tend to overcomplicate this. And here's the thing that I think about. You know, it's a it's a, a reelect. Uh, well, here here's a good anecdote. When we were we had, it was not long after Bush was elected in 2000, and uh, uh, Matthew Dowd was in the office, who was our, our strategist and a pretty good guy with the numbers, and and President Bush, I think, was saying something about how happy he was that, you know, we had gotten 41% of the Hispanic vote, and, and Matthew said, you know, that's great, Mr. President, but you do realize that if we don't increase that to 43 next time, we'd lose, mm-hmm. and, which was true, and we and we did. Um, yeah. But the thing I think about thinking about Trump, I mean, his base and everybody talks about it, is as, as enthusiastic as any base ever. And you see when you go to any of these Trump things, man, they, they are like glue and they're not going anywhere. Yeah. But my question is, as I look around, I talk to people like, show me a new Trump voter. I know that maybe every single one of them that voted for him before right. is going to vote for him again. And I see a lot of Democrats, independents and soft Republicans who did not vote for Hillary, but are going to vote for Joe Biden. That is addition. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the uh, I think the answer that they would give if they weren't wasting their time listening to our podcast (laughs) would be that they uh, they think they can produce more of the same. They think in states like Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, there are more white non-college educated voters of the sort who are the core of Trump's base who did not participate last time and uh, that if they can get them in the game they can change the architecture in ways that will allow them to pull off another narrow win uh, in those states and I think part of the look I think there's a two two motivations to this crime strategy one is to get those people uh, excited and and involved the other, I think, is a misbegotten one, which is the notion that somehow they're going to get the suburbs back, because that is really what shifted in American politics is, uh, you know, the suburbs have shifted dramatically against Republicans, I think, uh, in, you know, in no small measure because of Trump. And, you know, we saw that in 2018. We're seeing it again now. And I think he may have really miscalculated, you know, going into 
the conventions, there was a uh, Fox News poll nationally, and 64% of suburban voters said that uh, gave him poor marks on race relations, 67% of suburban women. He thinks he can scare them back, uh, but uh, but it may be that it has the reverse effect and just cements the, the, the impression of a guy who's just uh, just toxically divisive, uh, which I think is a big uh, a big fear that they have. So that is their theory. I think that they can, ch- you know, that there are hidden votes out there uh, for them. And you look, there was a study by Brookings that said of the people who sat out 2016, you know, if you extrapolate, and I think I'm saying this right, you know, about 60% or more in each of those three states are white non-college educated voters, not African-American voters, not um, you know, not voters who, who lean democratic. So that is their hope. Uh, but, um, but that's a very hard thing to do to turn non-voters into voters. Well, and, and to your point, I mean, if you looked at two more state polls out today, uh, Quinnipiac had in Florida and in Pennsylvania, 93% of the voters in Florida and 94% of those polled in Pennsylvania said they'd made up their minds. Five percent, but were, that's why so, you got to add yeah. people who aren't being polled because they haven't right. voted. Right, that elasticity of of who you're looking at currently is is not there. And I do, you're right that that pool of non-voters is dominated by what would be considered uh, more likely to be Trump-based voters than anything else. The question is, you know, can you get them up and off the sidelines um, at a time in which uh, a lot of people are seeing the country on the wrong track? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, confusion, and uh, not not a not a time in which I think a lot of people are saying yes, let's go participate gladly in the democratic process. Listen, if you got dropped down on Earth, you know, from Mars and knew nothing, and we're told these these things that the uh, right track, wrong track for the country was you know two thirds wrong. The president 80%. had yeah. the 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 uh, the, uh, the president had a uh, uh, approval rating in the low forties. Unemployment was over 10 percent and you had a a, a pandemic that in the last uh, eight months has killed, you know, 186,000 people. Um, You know, you didn't have to. This doesn't even have to be a politically sophisticated Martian. That Martian is going to say there's no way this guy can win. Well, I tell them the Martian, you're not you're not watching Fox News. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, there is a different there is a different reality. And just just one one other thing that uh, we should point out um, that uh, Trump. Uh, well, a couple of things that Trump may take some solace. And, you know, uh, Nate Silver had a graphic uh, the other day, tweeted a graphic and ch- chance of Biden electoral college win if he wins the popular vote by oh, X yeah. points. So if Biden wins the popular vote by one to two points, his chances are just 6%, according to Silver, uh, uh, or zero to one, one to two, 22, two to three, which is where Hillary was, 46% chance of winning the electoral college. It's only when you get to three to four point lead where you get to 74. And then after that, it becomes pretty decisive up to where he is now, it would be a 99% chance of winning the Electoral College. But, you know, Obama won a landslide against McCain in 2008, and he won by seven points. It is, you know, it, it that would be quite a feat for Biden to maintain this margin uh, here. So that's one thing that, you know, Trump's 
thinking if we can just peel a few points off in those battleground states, it's going to be much closer, and maybe we can uh, put this thing together. That graphic and all the attendant math that goes with getting that graphic to be what it is, is the source, McKinnon, of Democratic bedwetting right there. That, that say, is, turn, on the, turn on the faucets, man. That That's, is literally, there are, there are many people talking about exactly, the intricacies of, of popular vote and electoral vote have never been higher in the quotient of what people are talking about. It could be that Nate, Nate Silver just made that up to fuck with people. It w- and it would work because we'd all read it and be like, wow, that's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it would work. Yeah. It has worked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so no. l- let's flip this then. Let's flip this because uh, there's, you know, obviously more than one person in the race. You're, you're Joe Biden. And uh, you also have 25 days before the first debate. You're, uh, we, we've seen that he uh, is out pretty much more consistently this week. Uh, than he certainly has been. And Mark, as you said, moved the schedule up to start traveling, which I think we all agree was incredibly smart. Uh, you know, not just to and address, necessary, yeah. Absolutely. Not not just to address what's happening in Wisconsin, but just understanding that this was a fully formed race and uh, needed fully formed candidates. But what, if, if anything, would you be doing differently or what would you be doing more of if you were sitting in Wilmington, Delaware? Uh, I, I think that I would, uh, you know, try and maintain a vigorous schedule. Um, I, I really like his message about, you know, keeping people safer with, with a very broad net that covers kind of the protests, covers COVID. But also, I, and David, I think you've talked about this before, is, you know, the only place he faces a deficit is on the economy to Trump. Mm-hmm. Go after that. Go yes. after that. Lay yes. down a Clear economic plan. And by the way, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the stock market today, but yeah, big dive. Thousand point. And, down. and it's you know much later than I expected it. But but there could be some real jitters in the market, which is kind of one of the only things Trump's hanging on to. Jump on that if you're Joe Biden. Take advantage of it and just lay down and say, you know, I've got a clear economic plan. Uh, we're going to we're going to have, you know, some steady economic leadership. And you know, take away the only offense that they've got. Yeah, he ran out of he ran his economic plan out in the summer earlier in the summer uh and it was it was good but it 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 came and went and they need to i think they do need to reset that and the critique of trump uh and what his economic policy is actually meant for people you know i don't think right. what we've heard enough about david is you know just what uh, joe biden's responsibilities were in the, in the economic crisis in 2008 yeah i agree and that's a great story to tell there, right? there is a great story to tell you know and i i mean i look we're not sitting there with their research and I presume they're stressing the things that uh, their research uh, uh, suggests they stress. But it's ac- it seems logical that the, f- the fact that the guy ran the Recovery Act and ran it so well uh, is, uh, is, relevant, uh, is relevant here. You know, Robert, you know, when you talk about Trump, you were asking about uh, Trump. I still think, I still think at this late date, if he were looked more like he was actually paying attention to this crisis and he was actually doing constructive things instead of trying to spin it, uh, that he might profit from that. If he looked more like a, a, a sober leader who was in control of the situation, I, I still feel that way. But, you know, I don't expect that that's going to happen. No, I, I do, too. I mean, I, I was struck and I was having conversations with a few reporters over the weekend that were were really building up the 
this is an existential moment for Biden. Um, and I said, look, I don't disagree that this is a consequential moment for Biden to address the the unrest and to make sure people understood where he stood on that. But I, I think the contrast that Biden has subtly tried to draw throughout the week is who looks, appears, acts presidential. And, yeah, and I, I don't yeah. think that yes. I don't think you can underestimate that. I mean, it, it, you know, I remember in 2008 when I think that's really true. When the when yeah. the economy collapsed, and, you know, and and really acutely collapsed on September fifteenth, you know, I think that race was was won in the next sort of seven to ten days around, you know, Senator Obama looking and and sounding presidential, and I, I you know, it sort of sounds flip, you know, sound presidential, look presidential, as if you're you're acting, but I think I think people want to turn on that TV, and and look, I think this is what's going to be is also is an interesting thing about Trump's strategy is it feeds off of chaos. It feeds off of distrust. And every time I think people feel that they feel anxious and, and I, you know, that suburban voter is not going to look at that chaos and think, let's get more of that. And, and I think that's a, I, I think, I think he's done well with that this week. I, I yeah. agree with this. And look, it wasn't just this week, but, uh, I think one of the be- obviously he did very well with his speech at the convention and that speech at the convention the way they presented it was more of a presidential address uh than it was a uh, a, a convention speech and um I mean Biden is sort of modeling what he would be like as a mm-hmm. president at a time when people are very freaked out and 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 Trump is is becoming more and more erratic uh that you know now i so i agree with everything you guys say but i also would spend a lot of time uh getting ready for that debate i think that's time off the road well worth spent uh, yeah i i just wrote a column in vanity fair about uh, the debates because you know i mean they're always important in any election obviously i mean there's i argue there's sort of three times when you have an opportunity to really move the dial of public opinion when you announce the conventions and the debates and and, but this is especially true this year when you don't have a lot of the conventional retail uh, politicking that we normally have. So I think I think these debates could arguably be the most important political debates, uh, maybe you know, maybe in history in terms of in terms of the, the possibility that it could change the outcome. I think the first debate, and by the way, yeah. you know, I think they were wise to uh, name Chris Wallace as the moderator of the first yeah. debate yeah. because he is very, very good. Uh, and, you know, uh, for a whole range of reasons, the way he, he comports himself and the fact that he comes from Fox and so on yep. very was a, a very good move. But uh, and he won't be easy on either of them. But no. uh, uh, Do you think I, he's I just practicing think... counting backwards from 100 by 7. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that could be a question. Uh, uh, it, could, it, it could be a stumper. Yeah, yeah but uh, but. Uh, you know, because of all of the all of the insinuations from Trump, and by the way, these polls have to be kind of crushing to him because in most of them, people give Biden more credit for mental acuity than Trump. But the but Trump's insinuation that Biden isn't up to it um, makes it important for Biden. McKinnon, I keep raising this 1980 debate, Reagan and uh, Carter, yeah, yeah. and the fact that, um, you know, the people have pretty much decided they wanted to fire Carter, but they were worried about Reagan. And he showed up at that 
one and only debate. And he, rather than looking like a scary extremist who might blow up the world, he seemed genial, warm, in command. Uh, and that was it. The election was over. The bottom dropped out. I think yeah. Biden, if Biden comes, uh, I think Biden has an opportunity to take a real leap forward here. If he well, just... I can put it away. He can put yeah. it away if he yeah. has a good first debate. I agree. And and the problem, uh, as, as as you guys know, is that these aren't forensically judged. It's and it's it's mostly about expectations. And the the Trump Trump has done a great job of lowering the bar for Joe Biden. So he it's can amazing. Just walk over it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And and you know we've talked about this before here, but you and I both were involved in preparing presidents uh, for reelect debates. And um, like I was aware of your experience and every other incumbent president's experience in these uh, debates, with the exception of Bill Clinton in 1996. But every president stumbles on the on that first debate. I mean, I circled that damn thing in red like four months in advance and we still couldn't get it right. So Trump could, you know, Trump defies these odds. But I think you know, you can kind of guess how he's going to come in. He's not it's not going to be a, a new Trump. I don't know if you remember this, but I called you right after that, your first debate. Yes. Re-elect, because it was such a familiar thing to me, because just like like uh, your guy, you know, George Bush or that. I mean, first of all, he didn't want a debate, didn't think, you know, I just right. don't have to. He wasn't they used to you know, right. people being in his face and, you know, I have to lower himself to this Yahoo. And and then the other thing is, of course, he came off the stage thinking he won. Yeah. And he was like, yeah. boss, <laughs> yeah. wasn't so good. Well, yeah. and I, I've always maintained in listening to, I've heard both those stories. Uh, well, obviously the Obama one, but also the Bush one. I mean, you, you sit in that Oval Office and nobody argues with you. No, nobody yeah. nobody sits five feet away from you and says, let me go through your record. Now get, get out of pen because I've got some things I want to argue with you. I, I don't, I remember going into a meeting once in there. And somebody saying, you know, this this decision's crazy. I'm just gonna I'm gonna speak my mind. And, you know, they go to that person, and he couldn't have laid down more. Yes, sir, yeah. Mr. President, you're right. You're. Right. I remember walking out of there thinking that was true in our White House, but I'm sure yeah. in the Trump White House, there's a lot of candid discussion with yeah. the president. I'm sure there. <laughs> well, maybe his style will help him a little bit more in something like that. But I, I agree with you too, both that I, I think the economy still does seem to be the source of some uh, Trump strength. Uh, it certainly is in some of the state polling that came out this week. We have, you know, full jobs report comes out uh, Friday morning. Uh, n- not that people are going to watch the full jobs report, but it'll give you a sense of kind of where the economy is going. Uh, and it is a good time to get back for if you're Joe Biden to get back into talking uh, with much more regularity uh, about the economy. One note on the debate, uh, guys, but just before we leave it, is that, you know, one, one of the points I make in this kind of, you know, my sort of five points of uh, debate muffs and prepping a candidate is just how important confidence is. And that's not a problem with Donald Trump. And, and the other thing that's problematic with debating Trump is he doesn't, you know, he, he, he's, he, there's no sort of standard rule book that he applies to himself to. And he's pretty good at taking over a stage and dominating. Yeah, he is. But here's the other thing. There's no new Donald Trump. You know what you're going to get. And that's why this prep is so important. Because, as you know, you win a debate by understand, by predicting in advance almost everything that's going to happen. Like, you may not know how the specific words or nature of, but you know how Trump's going to come at you. You know the basic kind of message he's going to come at you with. You know his, and, you know, you 
they'll probably have, I don't know who's playing Trump, but they're going to find some obnoxious New Yorker to stand in for him and, and hope, you know, from, from a Biden standpoint, the hope is there's nothing that he sees that he didn't expect in some form or fashion. Uh, and I think it's easier to prepare for Trump in that way because it's not like he's going to, Mitt Romney did a complete, it was, uh, you know, it was a Pluff and I had a chat the other day. Pluff said it was like Rocky, you know, all of a sudden he started fighting left-handed and, uh, and, and it kind of, it was, it fooled us, you know, I mean, because. By the way, Mitt Romney is a good example of somebody who really prepared well for debates and got a lot better at it. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. So I don't think that Trump is going to be that guy. Uh, I think Trump is going to be Trump and he's going to be, you know, he's going to try, as you say, take over the stage. And Biden just needs to use his negative energy against him, almost like he did in that speech and sort of use it as exhibit A like this. We've seen this act for four years and uh, we're paying a big price for it. So um, we'll, we'll see. Not surprised Pluff came up with a Philadelphia reference to. Uh, yes, I know. I know. Yeah, you can. He can't help himself. Should we do some mailbag? Yeah, we should. It's listener mailbag. Thank you, Mike Murphy and the Mike Murphy Band for that uh, jingle. This comes from Seth. To we'll give this to to you, McKinnon. Why doesn't Jeb Bush and his wife come out very strongly for Biden? While we're on the subject, how about George W? Wouldn't it be helpful to have George W. and Michelle do some spots together? You know, there's been a lot of speculation about whether or not George Bush, and in fact, there was even a New York Times article that said he was going to, which was inaccurate, that he was going to endorse Biden. You don't have to read too much between the lines to get a sense of where both Jeb Bush and George W. Bush are on, on President Trump. Uh, you know, remember when the, George Bush was quoted after the president's, I think, inaugural speech saying that was some weird shit. <laughs> um, and... A vote a long time coming, right? <laughs> but here's the thing that I say about that. I mean, they are, at the end of the day, rock-ribbed Republicans, you know, and they, they're not going to do anything that's going to be bad for the party. I mean, they want a Republican Senate uh, no matter what happens, and they, they're not going to do anything that would, you know, help uh, erode their, you know, the, what they think is a firewall in the Senate. Um, and uh, well, so, what about well, mean, let me ask you a question because you're a part time Texan, at least you still have the hats. Uh, what about George P. Bush and how does that factor into it? Because, you know, he is the one in the Bush family who uh, has been a strong Trump supporter, which is kind of odd given, you know, the history with his father and the president. But that's another reason I think that they're not going to do anything because they don't want to do anything that's going to hurt George P. Yeah, that's what he's I would the guy think, with right. the potential political future right now. And they're all about family. So they're never going to do something that's going to screw that you know that would put george p in a bad position which that would that's that's what i Makes think sense. robert known by known as bob by his family uh, i'll ask you this i propose that we have instant fact checking during the debates have a panel of experts pandemic economy history etc with buttons in his or her hand like jeopardy every lie gets dinged biden and trump will have a live scoreboard in front of his podium uh, Vegas to set the over under <laughs> must see TV fact checking after the debate is worthless. What say you about this? This sounds exciting. I'm in for the pay-per-view of this. Uh, I, I don't know <laughs> if we can get the, the candidates involved, but a, a, a panel uh, with buzzers and and a scoreboard and, and Vegas odds sounds just like what the economy would need. Um, By the way, a buzzer set up 
with Trump in the debate. I mean, the buzzer would go on tilt probably five <laughs> minutes into the debate. <laughs> You'd need new buzzers. Yeah. I think the onus is really going to be on the moderators to make sure that the answers are grounded in some sense of the truth. And I, I will say, we mentioned this earlier, you know, Chris Wallace, um, I think if you watch that interview uh, that he did with Trump, he, he, he knew where the president was going to go on some of those answers and made sure that he wasn't able to do some of those things. I will say this. I think the debate moderators, Steve Scully from C-SPAN, Chris Wallace, Kristen Welker from NBC and Susan Page from USA Today, th- that's a great group of very, very smart reporters. Yeah. And and I think a good set of moderators that is going to need to hold both candidates to account uh, for what they say and what they back up. While we won't have uh, quite what Bob proposes in the tilt-a-world of uh, fact-checking, uh, I do think you will have a, a fairly good amount of making sure uh, on both sides, that what they say is close to the truth. Well, if you're Trump, you're preparing for that, and you're probably going to turn on the moderator if the moderator, uh, you know, goes after you. I mean, I think that's going to be part of it. The moderators themselves are going to have to prepare for these debates in ways moderators haven't had Absolutely. to prepare uh, before. Even in, in, you know, they didn't know what they were getting to entirely in 2016. Uh, you got one for me, Gibbs. I do. This is uh, it's a little bit of a longer question. It says, on a recent podcast, you mentioned that campaign messages designed to capture one profile of voters often alienates another profile, negating any net gain. Uh, is this an outdated assumption? Messages running on, o- on the OAN environment may never be seen by voters getting their news on CNN. I wonder if advertising channels are now so siloed that there's no bleed over into other channels, therefore no, no negative consequences. Now, the one thing this guy stipulates at the end, he says, if this question is used, please give it to the smart guy to respond. We're making an exception and not giving this to McKinnon, but giving this to you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And just in deference to the question, I'm going to answer in Latin, if that's okay. <laughs> uh, you showed but, it. <laughs> listen, I think there is more siloing. And, you know, we do have a much more uh, micro-targeted media, but it is very hard to hide stuff. I mean, you can do it digitally. There are digital appeals. Uh, that are being made that are uh, explosive and and harder to track. Um, it's it's hard to put on a television ad that ultimately, if it is if it is provocative, uh, doesn't go viral and doesn't doesn't get covered. You want to do that kind of work, you do it digitally, uh, and I think we'll see a lot of it uh, proffered by the campaigns and probably the Russians and others. Uh, we already are seeing some of it. Uh, now. But McKinnon, do you, I mean, I I just have this assumption that if you put something on TV, someone's going to see it and it's going to get around. Yeah. I I think your point is, is, is well said, David, which is if it's something that's effective, especially people are going to see it because that's, you know, if if it's different or having an impact, then it's going to get the attention. It's going to start spinning out virally. And that, you know, that's how things have ultimately have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if that rises to the level of a the smart answer you were looking for, uh, uh, Mr. Questioner. But what what was the guy's name? Merle. Merle. But uh, Vinny Vitti Vici. But uh, <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> there you go. McKinnon, McKinnon, do you want to? Did you want to say something on the 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 fact checking? 
Do you, we can splice oh, it? Oh, I, I just, I, I thought it was a, a, you know, it's an interesting question, and and uh, I, I, I like what you said, Robert, which is when you have people the level of, of of quality like a Chris Wallace, they are, they should be fact checkers, and they should be holding them accountable, and they should anticipate those kind of, you know, study the candidates, see how they try and dodge, so they can do that. I will just say that I saw a remarkable thing that, that again, uh, you know, talking about being effective and going viral. I didn't see it when it actually happened, but I saw a viral thing of a guy uh, who did just that with Trump's speech on CNN in real time. And it was remarkable because he was like fact checking it. You know, this was his, conven- his convention speech and in real time. And it was pr- it was quite something to see. Well, you know that there will be fact checking going on and all the networks yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, will be doing uh, uh, aggressive. But I do like the buzzers and the Vegas. Idea. Here's a question for fun. you guys. And I know we, we, we're going to run out of time here. But what if what do you do uh, if you're Biden and, you know, Trump is involved in serial um, serial lying on the stage? Uh, you know, you don't want to stand there sputtering. Um, he needs some sort of line. Uh, to deal with that. Um, there you go again. Something, yeah, well, it worked for Reagan, <laughs> but I think it's been used. But he needs his version of that, Absolutely it seems does. to me, to sort of make it, to, to, to bracket it and say, you know, this is the guy we know. You know, yeah, and you know the other thing he's got to do, David, is that the one thing that he's done in debates that is kind of problematic is, you know, unlike Trump, he like, you know, he's trying to like be the good schoolboy and really stick to the rules. And he's like, oh, I'm out of time. I've got to stop. And, you know, he, he's he's trying to play. Yeah, too no, much you to can't. The, yeah, this is uh, that that has to be something they work on, uh, because if he plays by uh, Marcus of Queensberry rules there, uh, he's going to get wiped out there. You know, you, you do have to be. You know, you can't you can't follow the rules scrupulously against a guy who doesn't follow them at all. Uh or he'll, you know, he'll be in trouble. More to come on debates. Uh, we've got a few weeks to go before those. So uh, last call. Last call. Shameless plug. But I had a Chastin Buttigieg, uh, the, the husband of Pete Buttigieg, on my podcast. He just wrote a book, the, the Axe Files podcast. He just wrote a book uh, called I Have Something to Tell You. Uh, and it's really, really an interesting book and how he talks about the uh, life of a uh, of of a spouse when the spouse is the spouse of the first gay openly gay candidate running for president is really an interesting story. We have a clip. I'm not sure we have time for the clip, uh, but it's a real it's a great conversation. So I urge you to tune into the Axe Files when you're done watching the circus. Thanks. You know uh, we're we we do uh, we do in a week what does you know often takes months to do because we have wizards for editors and and make a documentary every week because we will have a great documentary summary of all things wisconsin this week which was ground zero in american politics yeah that's good and you stayed off your bike in wisconsin uh mckinnon (laughs) i'm getting a pogo stick yeah (laughs) that cane that he's carrying now is well earned uh, (laughs) through his antics on what was it mountain biking or something yeah, my mountain bike, as it turns out, cannot fly. That is a good last call to end on. No more mountain biking for you. Not till uh, the end of the Mark season. McKinnon. <laughs> <laughs> the okay, great, great to see you, brother. Thank you, man. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming. See you next chapter. See you.